Nebraska has, like virtually all of the United States, um, some really shameful episodes in it, in its history. And so I think just being kind of upfront about that and mm-hmm. grappling with um, with you know histories of um, of racial oppression and native dispossession and all of that other um, you know those those thorny topics uh, we've got to do right. Any honest historian has to think think recognize the role that um, that that racism, white supremacy, discrimination has played in its history. Um, mm-hmm. But but that's that's part of the story only. You know, um, the other part of the story is one of um, of of uh, black self activity of uh, of agency again to go back to that that phrase history from the bottom up. I mean, I think mm-hmm. central to the idea of history from the bottom up is that people have their own agency. They're not simply acted upon by these you know really large impersonal forces. They're they're agents in the making of their own history. And so when it comes to African-Americans in Alaska, you know, that history has been their involvement in business, their involvement in politics, um, culture, all of the above. And so on the one hand, we uh, we recognize, you know, histories of racial discrimination. And on the on the other hand, we also recognize that that people are not just immobilized in the face of discrimination. They're, in fact, agents who are very capable of um, forging social movements, mm-hmm. uh, solidarity. They're, uh, they're people who are going to, to rise up and involve themselves in, um, in, in the workings of the state. And so I think that that's, that's really important for people to, to recognize the ways in which history is complex. It isn't simply mm-hmm. sort of a, a narrative of victimhood. It's, it's a narrative of, um, of self-activity. And, mm. and to me, again, you know, that's, that's what history of, from the bottom up should really uh, look at. It should, it should recognize those moments of agency. That was historian Ian Hartman. He's an associate professor and department chair at the University of Alaska Anchorage. He teaches history from the bottom up, meaning he looks for how regular working class people have been agents of change throughout history. This is the opposite of how so much history has been recorded, which has looked at it through the perspective of the great man theory. The great man theory, as it relates to history, looks at leaders and other perceived great men as heroes and sole agents of change. Ian points to the civil rights movement and the general cultural upheaval of the 1960s and the 1970s for shifting our understanding of history. Ian is also a public historian, known most recently for his work on the history of the Alaska Railroad and a book he co-authored with Alaska public historian David Reamer about the history of the black experience in Alaska. The book, Black Lives in Alaska, A History of African Americans in the Far Northwest, details how black men and women have participated in Alaska's politics and culture since before statehood. How black history in Alaska is almost by default a history of the bottom up. It's a history that involves racial discrimination, but also involves people mobilizing themselves in the face of that discrimination. How they were, and are, agents who are capable of forging social movements and solidarity. How they rose up and involved themselves in the workings of the state. His work on the Alaska Railroad will soon be on display, along with the work of other experts, at an Anchorage Museum exhibition titled All Aboard, the Alaska Railroad Centennial. The exhibition highlights crucial moments, technological innovations, 
and human stories connected to the railroad and its operations in Alaska. An interesting fact about the people who originally worked on the railroad is that the majority of them came from Alaska. They were already in the state, working the Klondike Gold Rush. And when that ended, workers, who were generally young, single men, found more work helping to construct the railroad. So here he is, Ian Hartman. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and and future. future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. You know, judging by your Facebook profile, it looks like you have a cat. (laughs) Well, I I do. Yeah. Um, My wife and I got married in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, when I moved her up here, the cats came too. (laughs) (laughs) So you are correct. We actually have two. Uh, We've got a big black cat and a smaller kind of uh, like gray uh, tabby cat. Okay. And the cat that you're probably referring to is, well, they're both old. They're both 17 years old or thereabouts, we think. Um, But yeah, he's a, he, he, they've been excellent pandemic uh, partners. And so I, I wanted to honor him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can agree with that. My wife and I also have two cats. One is a black cat. She is, she's young. Well, she's younger than, you know, our other cat who's, uh, I think it's called a tabby cat. That's the one. I mean, she's brown, but it's like a bunch of different browns. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I agree. They are excellent pandemic partners. Yeah. And, and you know, I've been working not fully remotely. In fact, I'm, I'm more or less back to my regular schedule at the university. But obviously, in the depth of the, of the pandemic there through 2020 and 2021, it was a lot of remote work. And so mm-hmm. they, were, they were good to have around and, and kind of, you know, cheap entertainment, I guess. Well, not that cheap. You got to keep them fed and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the vet and their old cats. So actually, I kind of take that back. But no, all the same. They've been really wonderful companions. Yeah. You know, I read that you teach history from the bottom up. What does that mean? So that's just a, I think, a way of um, maybe conceptualizing history that kind of locates the the agency among regular kind of working class people as opposed to the the great the quote unquote great man theory of history right and so you know you can you can look at po- like high politics and you can look at you know a history of presidents and a history of kind of what happens in congress as um as a way to understand history and and i suppose you can kind of get a partial view of of what that means um but at the same time i i subscribe to the belief that you if you want to kind of understand history uh, you also need to look at social movements. Mm. You need to look at working people. You need to look at sort of the the migration of people from one country to the other, from one region to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to obviously pay attention to the people who've oftentimes been um, not included in mm-hmm. kind of the official archives, whether that's um, women or people of color, uh, again, kind of migrants, both documented and not documented. And that to me would be kind of the, the best definition of history below is just kind of shifting the lens 
decisions away from the kind of you know the the halls where decisions and uh, you know, important decisions are made, but instead sort of looking at the street level and um, and looking at the community level. And and with me, even I I won't speak for you, but I mean I'm I'm somebody who works in a university and, and certainly has a level of privilege, and you know I have access to archives and uh and and an institutional affiliation, and so you know when I'm writing history, I think I I try to be really mindful of the fact that that not everybody uh will have had access to those sorts of um, institutions. And so okay. when I'm, you know, putting together a history, I'm, I'm, I'm asking, well, like, you know, who is likely to be included in this archive where I am at right now? Who is likely to have been included in, um, you know, the kind of formal channels of representation and, and finding ways to ensure that people who maybe haven't been included, um, can have some kind of representation in the history that I'm teaching or the history that I'm writing. Is that normal? to seek to understand history from the bottom up, or is that uh, not normal? Well, I, I think from a disciplinary perspective, uh, I think it's it's become increasingly normal. Uh, okay. you, you know, I, there, there certainly is is a field of, of history, um, very credible historians who, who, you know, study presidents and study Congress and again, high politics, I guess, to use that phrase. But I think, I think one of the things that we see right now is that, um, most in the discipline who have, you know, come out of PhD programs in the last maybe 30 or 40 years, um, certainly, you know, even before that, I mean, going back to maybe the civil rights era, I think there's been a real emphasis on trying to understand, um, history from a diversity of perspectives. And, and I'd also add, I think that's one of the reasons why we've we've kind of gotten ourselves into what are sometimes called like the history wars or the, you know, the, the big debates about history and what's taught in schools. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a there's a subset of the population who, frankly, thinks that maybe um, the, the older mode of doing history where, you know, we focus on the, the, the leaders on the presidents, that's sort of comforting to them. Maybe that's what they know. And now the inclusion of, I think, a diversity of perspectives is something that they're not necessarily on board with. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's quite contested, but certainly the discipline of history has kind of moved beyond that and is kind of willing to embrace, uh, what would, what would call kind of a history of, uh, from below. Do you know why people would be uncomfortable with that? You know, looking at history from, you know, the the bottom up perspective rather than really focusing on those in charge. Yeah, well, I, I, I you'd have to ask some of some of them, I, I think, but okay. I can I can give you my my rough sense. I mean, OK, let's think about like Thomas Jefferson, for example. Nobody really doubts that Thomas Jefferson was a particularly important figure in the founding of the United States, uh, mm -hmm. somebody who obviously played a central role in the Declaration of Independence, somebody who was obviously a president, somebody who, you know, under his authority, expanded the nation through the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, all of these things are beyond dispute. Yeah. At the same time, he's also somebody who was a slaveholder. He could not mm -hmm. have entered politics 
if not for his um, uh, the freedom that he had based upon the fact that he had, of course, this enslaved workforce. Uh, we know that he uh, that he fathered uh, children from Sally Hemings and what was what was a non-consensual relationship, at least um, on by I think by most uh, co common day standards. And so then the question becomes, you know, what Thomas Jefferson do we want to to kind of highlight? And to me, the answer to that is is both. Hmm. You have to understand Thomas Jefferson's contribution as as a president, as a statesman, but you also have to understand his, um, you know, the role that enslavement played in um, kind of giving him the time and freedom to to take on political pursuits. You have to understand the way that he uh, kind of built a family around again enslaved labor. And so, I mean, that's that's sort of part of the, the bigger story in those conversations, I think, do make some people a little bit uncomfortable because then we're getting away from the the hagiography of Thomas Jefferson and, and into a little bit more of the sort of full picture of who he was as a person. Mm -hmm. That's just one example. Yeah. And do you know why, or maybe you can guess why there's been this shift in understanding history this way? I, I I would take it back to, and I'm you know oversimplifying a little bit here, but I think I would take it back to the civil rights movement, and I'd take it back to sort of the the maybe the the more general cultural upheavals of the 1960s and 70s, and and so I think you you get to this point in time in American. Uh, in the history of like the American university system, where uh, really up until the, the 1960s and 70s, it was a, a, a kind of monoculture of white men who were mm -hmm. writing the history, who were deciding on what was important to write about. But then, you know, the, uh, the social movements of the 1960s and 70s really changed that paradigm. And as they did, you see a new generation of, uh, of scholars really start to uh, break into the university system, start to pose new questions uh, within their respective professions. And, and so I think that's, to me, the, the real uh, turning point. And, and again, it's not as though the history was was never there. It was just that the questions maybe had never been asked. And it, and it mm -hmm. took, I think, a new generation of historians who had come through the social movements, who had come through, um, you know, advocating for civil rights or uh, gay rights or mm -hmm. labor rights, whatever the case would be, yeah. um, you know, who I think brought with them a, a, a kind of a more critical lens to, um, to American uh, history. You know, after you identify a subject that you decide that you'd like to put work into, you know, do research, how do you begin that research, you know, considering that subject from the bottom up? Mm, that's a really good question. Uh, I, so I, I think, again, it, it begins for me with, with a question. I, you know, uh, there's a, a great historian of uh, the American West. Interestingly enough, his name is Elliot West. Um, okay. <laughs> but he, I, I, I saw him, uh, I've seen him give a couple of talks over the years. And, and one, of the, one of the things that he always mentions is that when he's writing history, he'll say, you know, there's uh, the first thing he'll want to ask is, you know, well, what's well, what's happening here? What's going on? And mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's it's it sounds very simple, but it's actually kind of a challenge. And and so when I develop a research topic or I'm looking into you know a series of of themes in history, whatever it is, I think the first thing I want to do is just pose, well, you know, what what could we have missed? What's going on here? Is the story maybe more complicated than we've been led to believe? Mm -hmm. uh, 
and, and you just want to constantly pose uh, new questions, uh, allow your research to guide you, uh, get into the primary source material, but then also I think um, always be willing to revise your, uh, your understanding of a topic, you know, try to go in with as little preconceived notions as possible. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we can put this into effect and maybe talk about how you began studying the Alaska Railroad. Oh, okay, sure. Well, that's, that is one that is probably, um, that's more personal, I think, than, than professional. And what I, okay. mean by, and what I mean by that is the, when it comes to the railroad, I, uh, I, I moved here in 2011 and I struck up a, a friendship with Jim Blassengame. And, and to this day, Jim is one of my dear, dear friends, just a, a phenomenal individual who I care deeply about. And mm -hmm. we, you know, again, we remain very close. We'll, you know, go out for dinner and, um, and Jim has just been a champion of, of history. And so Jim was an executive on the, uh, for the Alaska railroad for over 40 years. And so Jim just through my conversations with Jim, um, I've, he's kind of, you know, lit the passion of, of, uh, of the Alaska Railroad within me mm -hmm. and hearing the stories that he has told me and uh, just kind of, again, like, you know, the uh, how uh, how his passion is, is infectious, I guess I might say. I've become interested in, in the railroad, both as kind of a um, a driver of economic development uh, in Alaska, but also just kind of the the more general, I think, technological history of, of railroads is is always been fascinating to me. I've done some research on the history of the American West and the, obviously the role that the transcontinental uh, the transcontinental rail railroads have played. Mm -hmm. Alaska is is a little bit different in its development of rail, but nonetheless, I think like once you once you catch the railroad bug, I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter what railroad it is. You just want to learn more about it, and so um, I would really attribute that to Jim's influence, if I'm to be honest. And how does the Alaska Railroad play into Alaska history? Well, I, that's, that's a great question too. And it's always funny to me. I'm going to ask you a question if you don't mind. Yeah. And, and, and this is, this is, this is one of the, this has come from conversations I've had with, uh, with Jim and it, it's always something that, that I do when we have these talks in public. And so I begin with what, um, what does the Anchorage municipality flag look like? Do you happen to know? I think I could be wrong, but does it have, um, is it, is there gold in it? And, it is. Yes. Yeah. And, and is good. there a seal? There is a seal. And so, okay. so there's, a, there, there's a seal right, right in the middle and you're, you're, you're really, Hey, you're doing good. Um, and so <laughs> what, what is on the seal? What is on the seal? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to guess, is it a train? No, in, okay. in, in, indeed, it's not. It, it's actually okay. it's it's an anchor anchor. Oh, it right is there. okay. No. And then there's a there there's and there's a ship in the background there. And then in the corner, there's interestingly enough, there's a plane. What is conspicuously absent from the Anchorage municipality flag is a train. Okay. And and the reason I I bring that up is because it's curious because Anchorage exists as sort of a, a settler town, right? I mean, of course, the, the Nina people have used Ship Creek for 
for you know generations upon generations as um, as a fish camp and have certainly mm -hmm. made use of the area. So I mean, we don't want to you know forget about the native presence in South Central Alaska. Yeah. Um, as a uh, but as a sort of settler town, Anchorage exists because of the railroad, and it's always interesting to me that in the flag you don't see that you get you know you get the sense that anchorage was you know this going back to captain cook with the colonization efforts of the british you know had come through turning an arm and kind mm -hmm. of viewed i guess um from the ship the parts of uh some parts of south central alaska we know of course that it's this uh kind of railroad crossing or i'm sorry not railroad crossing air crossing uh with what nine hours to a huge percentage of the world's population by air but um but we sometimes forget that anchorage is a railroad town and it's it's very i think foundation uh is attributed to the fact that um the well a series of, of presidential administrations probably most notably of course woodrow wilson's administration wants to um, develop a government-owned railroad that would lead from south central into the interior uh to where various uh natural resources would have been um would have been mined excavated and then shipped back out to the coast for export okay. so i mean i i guess the, the that's a long way of answering your question but to me it's um I think it's sort of foundational to uh, Anchorage's very existence. Yeah, it sounds like it's about resources. It's oh, not absolutely. so much about, um, you know, the American West, where it was about resources, but also human travel. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. You know, I mean, the, on the one hand, Alaska does fit into this paradigm of the American West for all kinds of reasons. You know, one uh, is the, the amount of public land. I mean, one of the big differences between the American West and, say, the uh, the East and even the Midwest is just the, the copious amounts of land that are under public management through the federal government. The role that the federal government has played historically in Alaska is, of course, fundamentally different than the role that the federal government would have played in many, um, many East Coast cities, states, um, etc. And so, I mean, there, there are these, um, these similarities, but I, I think with, you know, the, the railroad is, uh, I think in contrast to the transcontinentals, which received all kinds of government subsidies, they, I, I would suggest to your, um, to your listeners, if they're curious about the, the transcontinental railroads, uh, Richard White's railroaded, uh, the great Stanford historian has written at length about railroads as have others, but railroaded to me is kind of the, the standard treatment of the transcontinentals. Okay. They were always, they were always, um, uh, they were owned, they were privately owned, right? I mean, publicly traded, they were corporations, basically, you know, the first corporations in the United States, the first modern corporations, um, would have been the railroads, whether we're okay. talking about the Union Pacific, uh, Southern Pacific, Northern Pacific, the Alaska Railroad, of course, is owned by the federal government. It's, uh, it's really the, the only, um, railroad that is owned fully by the federal government, uh, built by the federal government, you know, contracted, of course, mm -hmm. and operated by the federal government. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a fully, you know, kind of socialized operation, if we want to think of it, uh, in those ways, up until the transfer to, uh, state ownership in the 1980s. And what kind of person are we seeing working on the Alaska Railroad? 
Well, at first, so we, we go back to the, the tent camps and uh, in the beginnings of, of the railroad effort. Uh, this was primarily people who had come to Alaska, um, kind of holdovers from the gold rush. These were migrants from around the West Coast. Um, these, were, they were, these were immigrants, although some immigrants were more welcome than others. Uh, and so in the early days of the construction effort, it was very much so a boomtown, kind of like a Western boomtown, despite the fact that it's really being powered by, um, by federal appropriations. Nonetheless, uh, Anchorage is, is going to kind of have all of the, the trappings of what you would see in, in any other Western boomtown going back, you know, the, to the late 1800s, um, and as time goes on, you know, the these, you know, Anchorage stabilizes as a community. Um, the railroad, of course, re remains a really powerful um, employer in the region and uh, and and it will remain so today. And so I, I guess the the workforce itself is is, I think, pretty representative of the American labor force at the turn of the century, which would have okay. been uh, heavily immigrant, which would have been people who were uh, on the move, typically younger, typically male. Um, and then as time goes goes on, uh, that workforce stabilizes a little bit and, and, you know, starts to form a community, in which case we start to see more families. We start to see a gender uh, demographic um, even out a little bit more. And were these people staying in Alaska, staying in Anchorage, or were they working and then traveling back home? Yeah, I, I mean, it would depend. I, I think, again, early on, there was a lot of transiency, uh, okay. for sure. And again, that wouldn't have been too unusual. I mean, you have to think about a, a, any kind of construction boom. You know, these are, again, mostly younger people who are going to be more mobile, who are less attached. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to realize that this is a phenomenal opportunity to maybe make some money and then get out. But, you know, at the same time, many of the people who end up working for the railroad in these early days were already up here. I mean, you have to think of like the timeline. So, the we think of like the gold rush era of Alaska really beginning in the um you know the 18 I guess you know you had some gold strikes down in southeast like kind of in the Juneau area in the 1880s early 1890s the Klondike gold rush late 1890s mm -hmm. Nome 1900 the interior shortly thereafter and so you you had um a, a lot of people who had come up here between say the 1890s and you know 1910 um really in search of, of gold. And this is a, Alaska is a pretty far trek to get to. So, yeah. uh, you know, some of these people, I, I think were, were kind of waiting for the next fix. And so it, what they find in Anchorage wasn't necessarily a gold rush, but it was none, it was nonetheless a rush of some sort. And that rush was the, um, you know, the well-paid employment that they could have found uh, on the construction effort for the railroad. And so, you know, some of those people certainly do stay and put down roots. Um, some of them do return to, uh, to wherever they came. It's, it's kind of a mixed bag, but, um, but I, I guess the, the largest single, place where people came from to work on the railroad was in fact Alaska, which is, mm. which is interesting to me. Um, and, and again, that's purely because of this kind of legacy of the gold rush that, that is kind of concluding as the, um, uh, well, it is concluding as the, uh, railroad construction effort really ramps up. I wonder if that is, or it has been in your research common in Alaska people waiting for the next big thing. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think it would be really wonderful to do a, a really detailed demographic kind of st statistical analysis of of who was here and why. And you can do some of that stuff through through the census. I mean, it would be it would be a heavy lift, although nowadays with the ability to um, to look at data sets and to you know use, I think, more um, cutting edge research methods enabled by our computers and uh, and big data and everything else. I, I think you could probably get a little bit of a sense of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't want to oversell it. I think it's you know, people have their limits. They're not going to just kind of sit on their on their hands and wait around for the next big thing. But, yeah. um, you know, there it also really depends on the national economy. And so one of the things that we've we've seen in Alaska is that when there are these big resource booms, um, whether again it's a gold rush or whether it was oil, you know, obviously well into the 20th century, uh, the railroad, you know, the in the early decades of the 20th century, you you see people who are willing to come up here, um, and that they are willing to stay. But you know, Alaska is not for everybody, <laughs> and so it's it's not for everybody today, and it certainly wasn't for everybody in 1915, 1925, and so you you do see. Um, once the railroad construction effort is complete, and so right now we're of course we're, we're celebrating the centennial of the completion of the railroad mm -hmm. in uh, 1923, you you do see the population of Anchorage um, fall, uh, and in fact you see you know through the depression the population is kind of ebbing and flowing. There isn't much growth. I you know I I don't I don't know I. I I apologize, I don't have the exact statistics at my fingertips, but there's this kind of big boom. And then if if not a bust, it's sort of like a like stagnation. And then what, what really leads to the next big boom in Alaska is going to be the military through World War II, okay. when, when uh, Alaska is kind of militarized and becomes, uh, well, it, it's always been from the perspective of Washington, D.C., at least in the you know, 20th centuries had some geopolitical significance, again, going back to the gold rush, but certainly through the World War years, it becomes particularly um, geopolitically significant, kind of being out here in the North Pacific and, you know, abutting the Arctic, etc. That's going to bring in yet another wave of people. So, I, I mean, it's Alaska's always had this churn. I think it's it's one of, if not the most transient states in the in the country. That's that's true today, and it's been true. I I would suggest throughout the twentieth century as well. And that transiency is largely due to work. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and work broadly defined. And so when we think about um, when we think about the military, I mean, you know, these are, again, mostly young guys who come up here and uh, I would consider that work. Right. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. they're they're serving their country. But nonetheless, I mean, they're here to do a job. Yeah. And so uh, as the military really expands through World War Two and then into the Cold War, uh, that's going to be a, a huge driver of um, of both kind of population growth, but then also uh, uh, population churn, I guess, to use that word again. You know, I wonder if you've encountered any stories of these people, these workers, you know, whether they're Alaska railroad workers or gold miners, any of those, any stories that stick out to you? 
Mm. Oh, sure. Well, I, I mean, I'll, I guess I would start with the with the gold rush just because I've been doing some research on on you know gold rush or gold rush adjacent topics now for for a little while. Yeah. One of one of the things that I find really fascinating is that. Um, like many gold rushes, I think what people, you know, maybe who, who are just being introduced to this history, maybe what they don't realize is that the, the vast majority of people who participate in a gold rush, uh, actually don't, don't do very well. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're, they're lucky to, to get out with as much as they came with. I mean, it's a, it's a very small minority of people who actually do well. And so the ones who do do well, um, tend to be the people who actually don't even participate in the gold rush uh, directly, but instead what you, you, you think of is sometimes you'd say mine the miners. Mm-hmm. And okay. so you come up and you start a business. And so there's all kinds of interesting stories of people who started these um, I wouldn't even call them fly-by-night operations, but they're you know they're they're very enterprising people, and a significant number of them are women uh, who end up coming up here to start inns and um, restaurants and, yeah. and and sometimes brothels and you know so, so I mean there, there's a lot of that when it comes to the railroad, it's kind of the same thing, right? So you you have the you have in a sense like you you come into this knowing a couple of things, you know that you've got young young guys and again these are these are kind of manual physical jobs that that tend to draw men unattached men mm-hmm. uh, you know that they're going to have a lot of money and so just kind of think through the psychology of this here like if you this is still true today if you're like a big corporate if you're in corporate marketing or something like that you know the, the demographic you want to reach is going to be younger unattached people who make money mm-hmm. right yeah and and so you get um, out of that um, in all of these booms and again I put the railroad in that squarely in the same tradition people who come up knowing that you will have um, thousands of young people with a lot of money looking to spend it and mm-hmm. so you can get yourself into all kinds of trouble <laughs> Again, whether that's um, through kind of uh, you know houses of ill repute or yeah. uh, alcohol bars, yeah. you know whatever the case is. I mean, let your imagination go wild. Um, that's just kind of the the nature of these towns. I mean, you have vice districts, you have people who recognize that people are. Uh, it's not going to be all that difficult to get people to part ways with their hard earned money. Uh, and so I think those to me are, are the um, the stories that I find particularly interesting are the ones where people kind of catch on to this pretty quickly and they come up here with an idea of starting um, a business that can really um, take advantage of I, take advantage is a little bit maybe too strong but uh, recognize I think the the position that this workforce is in and, and there's just so many um, there's a market for so much entertainment, right? You know, when you're com- you come up to Alaska, it's it's cold, it's dark. Um, you have some money. Well, how are you going to entertain yourself on those cold, dark nights? And I think yeah. uh, to me, that's where that's where some really interesting history lies. Do you have any examples, you know, of these people who are making money off of the younger crowd, the workers? Mm-hmm, sure. Well, I, I go back again to the uh, to the kind of the, the gold rush age where you see a series of um, of brothels set up kind of, you know, in, in really distant areas, remote areas, uh, particularly along the trail in, in the um, in the railroad. You know, there was a red light district that was on the edge of town. And, you know, famously, this being a government town, there was the sense you know this was the Alaska Engineering uh, Commission, the AEC. And 
the the leaders of the AAC coming from coming from kind of a bureaucratic background really wanted to police what was going on in town but they also recognized that there was this market for sex work and so mm-hmm. pretty soon it became clear that they would sort of tacitly admit it to happen uh permit it to happen I should say but just not um not in in the exact town site so uh you know you have a lot of the sex work pushed off into the woods which at the time you know is just beyond the park strip today uh you know that's that's always an interesting example of where these vice uh, districts end up. And so that would be one example of the railroad was just this kind of thriving um, vice district that exists with the tacit approval of um, of these top government bureaucrats, but yet also kind of out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and, you know, the, the reality, too, is that in a lot of these places, they're they're policed quite heavily um there they will find some of the people involved in uh in what are basically illegal pursuits but they also know that these illegal pursuits are um valuable because there's a, there's not only a demand for them but they're they're also a way to raise some money by finding by finding people participating in them by uh again kind of policing the boundaries of respectability this is a this is a way for um you know a town site to make a little bit of revenue raise a little bit of revenue. Yeah, that's interesting too. You know, we we were talking about kind of mining the miners, right? So if I'm getting that expression correctly. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And so you have these workers, right? Let's say they're gold miners. And then you have somebody who recognizes, oh, these young men need to spend their time or they have money and they need entertainment. That's right. And so here's a brothel. But then the police are like, okay, that's illegal. So how can we make money off of that? But exactly. how can we how can we come to this understanding that this is necessary so these young men don't go crazy, right? They need entertainment. And so it's just this, it's the cycle that just keeps on going and going and going. Of course, yeah. That, and, and so, I mean, it's a lot of public hand wringing and it's a lot of politicians or aspiring politicians or in this case I would even call them you know tra- politicians necessarily by 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 trade but really bureaucrats you know again mm-hmm. being a government town these are people who actually don't really conceive of themselves as as political figures but yet they still are kind of administering a town and they're administering this this enormous enterprise talking about the railroad now um, and and they they recognize that that they all have jobs to do but they all also recognize that there's um, there are people in this town who are uh, providing various services that are in demand. And, and, and I, I single out brothels and sex work just because I think it's a particularly sort of lurid example. But I mean, there are other things too. I mean, it's music, it's, um, you know, clubs, it's alcohol. I mean, you know, finding places. I mean, you know, officially um, we're talking, you know, through the prohibition years, right? And, and mm-hmm. uh, Alaska is actually, you know, in the territorial days is going to even precede the federal government government in its prohibition. But of course, um, you know, you tell that to somebody in the 1920s who is who is here and once they get a drink, I can promise you they know where to find one. <laughs> you know, I feel like all of this gets to another thing that I read about you, which is your interest in how regular people have changed the course of American history. Hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, and it, I, I take it down a, a notch even to Alaska. I mean, I think what we see here is whether we're talking about kind of the, you know, the built environment of, of Anchorage and its relationship to the railroad. I mean, on the one hand, you have, um, you have the the government railroad and the official uh, policy of the federal government to build this railroad, but you know you also have, as as we've just talked about, the you know thousands of people who come to uh, to this site and who are already in Alaska, who are in other towns. They have other ideas about what the town is going to look like, and so mm -hmm. it's going to be this negotiation between the. Uh, you know what what the federal government deems to be kind of the top priority building a building a railroad operating a railroad making sure that resources are able to be brought in from the interior out to port whatever the case is but then also kind of negotiating that with the lived experience of the um, of the people who actually have to build it right you know so mm -hmm. um, some of these people are going to decide that working conditions maybe aren't all that great some of them are going to come up with you know really bad intentions that's part of the history too I mean you know some of these people are very plainly trying to take advantage of um, of railroad workers, and and so I think it's it's that again that kind of intersection between the official policy of you know all you know best laid intentions, right? Mm -hmm. um, you you have a government that has a, a job to do, and and all of the kind of bureaucratic um, procedures that that are supposed to be followed, but then the kind of everyday um, ordeal of people showing up to work, of trying to find entertainment, of mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, you know, trying to build a family, trying to build a community where you see, uh, I think, the, the real complexity of the history really play out. Yeah, yeah. I want to move on to your book, mm -hmm. Black Lives in Alaska, a history of African-Americans in the far Northwest. How did you research that from the bottom up? Yeah, so I I usually start out by by prefacing the um a little bit about how the book came into existence. And so okay. this takes us this takes us back we're, we're kind of um I guess proverbially speaking here it bookends. And so when I began this project we were we were back in 2015 which you might recall is the Anchorage Centennial. Mm -hmm. Uh and so the Anchorage Centennial of course is is really the the founding of the Anchorage town site uh, corresponding to the beginning of um, the railroad construction effort, at least kind of really ramping up the railroad construction effort. You know, railroads have been been built in Alaska or at least attempted to be built going back earlier than that. But anyways, um, we uh, the Cook Inlet Historical Society, of which I, I serve on the board and has obviously this longstanding relationship with the Anchorage Museum, um, got some uh got some grant money to to write a a collected volume called imagining anchorage and it was it was basically a series of reflections on the on the 100 year history of anchorage at that point 1915 to 2015 and as i was looking through the uh the potential contributions, it occurred to me that we didn't have anything on like a civil rights history of Anchorage or, mm -hmm. you know, we had really good representation on, um, on the railroad, for example, and we had some pretty good representation on Alaska native history. But I, I was curious if there was any, if we could be a little bit more inclusive of say the African-American experience in, uh, Anchorage at the time, knowing yeah. that there was some, some of these like civil rights battles and some of these civil rights actions, I guess we might want to call them. Uh, and so I volunteered to write what I thought was going to be um, a one-off chapter that was going to be part of this much 
broader project imagining Anchorage. And uh, at the time, I, I was, as I am now, at, at the university, and I was fortunate enough to have some really wonderful uh, undergraduate researchers help me out with that, one of whom was uh, the co-author of the most recent book and writes a piece in the Anchorage Daily News now, David Reamer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so what we quickly found was that by the end of the process of, of writing this chapter, we had so much material that um, I made the decision to continue to write. <laughs> yeah. And so and so now here we are eight years later um, with a book that that really emerged out of this singular chapter and then kind of another project that I did with the National Park Service on the same topic. Um, and, and I think to go back to your question about, you know, history from the bottom up, mm-hmm. the, uh, the history of African-Americans in Alaska is, is almost by default a history of the bottom up, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these are people who came up to participate in the workforce. Um, they didn't typically arrive with power and influence, although to be clear, many of them gained uh, power and influence sort of by sheer grit and determination. Um, and, and it was also, I think, a history that had been been told, but not really widely known. And so um, one of the goals of the project, particularly through the um, through the Park Service partnership, was to kind of work with uh, work with people in the black community and thinking of uh, of Ed Wesley and Cal Williams and Eleanor Andrews and many, many, many others mm-hmm. uh, to really try to uh, get this history out and more widely known. And so it, it really has been, um, in my mind, a community effort. And, and so I think that, that to the extent that it's history from the bottom up, I think it, it's got to have that community involvement. It's got to be kind of, um, recognizing of the fact that, that many of the people do in fact know this history and, and, you know, trying to involve them in, in the writing of it. And, uh, and so that's what, that's what we've tried to do. Cal Williams, you you mentioned him just a second ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cal is an activist and a community archivist. Yes. He wrote the foreword for the book. Absolutely. Yeah. Cal, Cal's, um, Dr. Williams, uh, Cal Williams received an honorary doctor from the university just this, uh, just this fall, in fact. And, and he has, in my mind is, is the leading historian, is the leading historian on, um, black Alaska. I mean, you know, bar none, he is, uh, he is somebody who in, in academic circles, you know, we think of like public history, uh, Cal lives it and breathes it. I mean, Mm -hmm. he, he is out there. And, uh, and so the project doesn't happen if it's, if it's not for, uh, if it's not for Cal, again, if it's not for somebody like Mr. Ed Wesley um, and, and so many others. But in particular, I think what, what Cal does so well is um, is connect with the community. And he brings mm-hmm. this history, again, into public spaces, You know, whether that's the museum or whether that's the senior center, for example. Cal and I just did a... Um, uh, a really fun talk at the uh, at the Anchorage Senior Center, I guess, back in February, and we've done a couple of these um, of these. We'll probably do like a little seminar at the university in the fall, and so you know he's kind of a a natural storyteller, and he's an mm-hmm. extremely gifted in his kind of public presentation. I mean, he's he's he actually is kind of fascinating. He's got a background in acting and public performance, and so you know he he brings this. He's a singer. I mean, yeah, <laughs> he, yeah. He can, he, He's just he, he can do all kinds of things that, that gosh I can't do I'll say that right now <laughs> and so I anytime I'm I'm presenting with Cal.
now I just sort of say, you know, take it away. And if I can be of assistance, just let me know, because he's, <laughs> he's kind of a self-starter. And, and once yeah. he gets going, I mean, he makes these really wonderful connections and he knows the history. Um, he, we were on, um, I, this was a public radio, um, show, I guess in the last, uh, gosh, I don't know. This was probably again back in like February, I guess it was. And, um, all of these names kept coming up from caller callers who wanted to know if so-and-so was in the book or if this person or that person was in the book. And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I, I wrote this book, but admittedly, like, I don't remember every, every name that I, I put in it. I don't remember yeah. even some, I mean, it's, I've, I've been working on this, like I said, for eight years. And so some of it just kind of escapes me yeah. I mean, embarrassingly enough. I mean, I'll confess that, but it's just, it was funny because Cal would know exactly who the person was that was who they referred to whether or not they appeared in the book or not like oh yeah i remember that person from from wherever oh yeah of course i know i i know her of course i know him and so yeah he's he's been up here since the 60s and um you know anchorage is kind of a alaska i should say is is kind of a small town when you get down to it and so he just has these incredible connections and so not only has he kind of lived the history he knows the people who have who have lived the history too and so i i certainly want to you know highlight that aspect of the book and his contribution to it yeah yeah cal is not only just a wonderful guy he's you know like you said, the, this wealth of knowledge. It's incredible. Um, I, I had the opportunity and the privilege of interviewing him on an earlier episode of Chattermark. So, oh, terrific. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, it, you ask a question and he just goes. And, he and it's, it's, it's always interesting. And, and he's also one of those people, and, and I would put Jim, my my friend Jim Blassingame in the same category. Who you know, there, there's a few of these people who have been up here, and I, I always joke with him. I say, you know, I, I can't I can't go anywhere with you because you know the minute you sit down to have a have a cup of coffee or lunch or a dinner, immediately you know without fail somebody comes over and wants to you know introduce themselves or talk to them or whatever yeah. it is. And it's actually it's really <laughs> funny, but it's it's just one of those things where you go out and you you just kind of know that there will be, uh, you know, a, a procession of people who, who stop by for, you know, just by happenstance who are, who are there, who happen to know, um, Cal or Jim or whatever the case would be. And they, they want to chat for a couple minutes and it just kind of goes on and on. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned David Reamer, who is another Alaska historian, a little bit earlier in this conversation, what was it like working with him on this book? Oh, David's a researcher. Um, you, you know, when uh, when we were putting together that initial chapter, you know, we had I guess five or six undergraduates, and and David had kind of stayed through with the process throughout, uh, and and was and was really I think invested on in bringing the the book into publication, and wanted to add a couple of chapters, particularly like with um with like relations between um, the police force and some of the things that you know some some kind of really ugly chapters of um of alaska history in regards to race relations and so mm -hmm. uh you know david had had done a lot of this research and, and was really i think insistent for all of the right reasons that 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 we include some of the stuff on um uh, the police department and some of these really nasty episodes of um, of racism that occurred in, in the not too distant past. I mean, you know, stuff that that takes us into the 1970s, 80s, 90s, even turn of the century Alaska. And so he had he had been doing some of this research 
and uh, and he's somebody who who really I think appreciates the process. Somebody who wants mm-hmm. to get into the documents, who wants to get into the records, and um, and really kind of follow the um, follow the sources and and see what they have to say. And so you know, David is somebody who you know he's gone on to to write this um, weekly column in the Anchorage Daily News. And I think one of the things that that people will notice about him is that he is he's a he he's a real kind of shoe leather guy when it comes to comes to his research and he's not mm-hmm. somebody who will leave stones unturned um, he's willing to go out there and, and do the work and I mean you know he would go to the recorder's office at the municipality hunting through housing records and seeing uh, seeing where the restrictive covenants were found and and who the development uh, who the developers were that were that uh, were deploying these restrictive covenants and what neighborhoods they were most prominent in and so he's he's somebody who who really contributed to the project um, it, it really every phase and I do want to recognize David um, for that I mean you know he's like I said, he's a real skilled historian. I interviewed him for a different podcast I do for Crude Conversations a few years back, and I was turned on to these articles that he was writing for this app next door. And it was my friend Helen was like, you need to have this guy on. He writes these incredible essays and he just puts them out there for free. Uh-huh. And so, um, you know, I asked David to come in and chat with me. This is when, you know, I was doing the, the episodes in person and man, was he a wealth of knowledge. Well, he's he's. Uh, you know, I always like to to highlight our history grads at UAA, and and so he's somebody you know. Even at, at the university, when he was coming through the program, you know, we we always try to support all of our students. But you know, some some students I think just kind of take to the discipline more than others, and and so you know, even as as an undergraduate completing his uh, his degree, I mean, it was pretty clear to to anybody who had ever had David in a class that this was someone who was who was bound to do interesting things, and and mm. so he. He is he has continued to to make us proud at UAA and and he's somebody who again I think is writing and he does it publicly too I mean that's the other thing I want to recognize about David I want to recognize about Cal mm-hmm. um, you know these are real public historians who are doing this work in the public settings you know I mean they're they're not kind of writing for an audience of a couple dozen graduate students um, you know around the country who are going to maybe encounter their book in a seminar classroom and then you know that'll be it I mean you know the, these are folks who are in invested in the community, who are invested mm-hmm. in educating people about our history as uh, as Alaskans, and I think they're to be really celebrated. And so I'm just really grateful that, you know, we live in a community where, you know, history is elevated, where people do, um, you know, want to share this history and want to learn about it. And, and, you know, that's thanks in large part to people like David, folks like Cal, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and many others, but just to single out those two right now.
And what did the research look like for the book? Were you going through archival stuff and libraries or were you conducting interviews or maybe both? Both. Yeah. It's, okay. it's kind of all of the above. And and I would, you know, when it comes to the archival research, the, the, the central collection here is uh, George Harper's Blacks in Alaska collection at the UAAPU Consortium Library. Um, George Harper, uh, in, in speaking of public historians, uh, super interesting guy. Um, it was a gentleman who I believe had a had a number of jobs. I think he worked for for the feds in if he was like a computer programmer or a computer technician. Cal would know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you know he passed away several years ago now. But oh. uh, but George Harper was was just kind of a, a history enthusiast, and in particular, of course, you know he he was really dedicated to. Um, uh, to sharing black history with, uh, with people in the community. And so he mm -hmm. had assembled this really rich collection of newspaper clippings and, um, artifacts and, and records and various other papers. And so those today can be found at the UAA library at the consortium library and, and Harper's, um, collection was really instrumental in, in, in writing, I guess the, maybe the, the early chapters, cause he really did take an, take an interest in, um, like black arrival in Alaska. So going okay. back to the 1870s and 80s, and you know, if he could ever find information on like whalers and um, Buffalo soldiers who came up to Skagway. I mean, he was he was really into that aspect of Alaska history. Um, and so that that was one source. Um, interviews, oral history, as you just pointed out, was another one. Sitting down with people in the community, knowledge bearers, culture bearers, people like mm -hmm. uh, Cal and Ed Wesley and Eleanor Andrews and um, various other you know who were who were in the book uh you know the one of the great things about anchorage is that the at least from from the perspective of, of an historian is that so much of our history is not yet written yet so it's it's actually pretty easy to um to locate people who have spent their 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 lives in a town that you know has only been been unified as a municipality since 1974 75 <laughs> and so yeah. you know you've got people here who who sort of predate the municipality of anchorage who can really kind of go through and tell you what it was like at a certain time and so, yeah. you know, including those perspectives, I think has been been really valuable. And so what you find is in the latter chapters, I think a real emphasis on um, on oral history, uh, as well as the, the more documented um, history that you might find in uh, in archives. Can you explain one of those sit downs where you're sitting there talking to a culture bearer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I mean, I think it, it, it begins with trust. You know, you, mm -hmm. you've got to, and, and one of the things I do think that has helped this project was that, you know, it's, it's taken a long time to mature. I mean, I, again, I go back to 2015. And so, um, you know, I, I reached out to, uh, to Ed Wesley, who uh, put me into contact with with several people who had been around a long time. And, and, you know, Ed and I developed a relationship. Um, you know, oftentimes, it starts with a cup of coffee. And, and it starts with just kind of, you know, asking very general questions and just showing an interest. And, and you know, I, the other point I would make here is that, you know, I'm, I'm a white guy from Western Pennsylvania who has lived in, in Alaska since 2011. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I should be viewed skeptically. That's just the fact of the matter. I mean, like you, you know, I think being 
uh, expressing some humility, right? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. like I, I'm coming into this as somebody who who has never had access and probably shouldn't have access to a lot of this history, and and so I, you know, I, I need to be kind of sensitive to that, and and I I need to be, you know, understanding, and I am that that at first blush, people are probably gonna gonna want to know, like, well, what what does this guy why is he curious in this history and what's he going to do with it? You yeah. know, I mean, people, people need to really ask those tough questions. And I, um, and it's up to me to gain trust. And to the extent that I, I don't do that, then the project, um, won't succeed. And so I, I think it's, it's really a, a question of, 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 establishing relationships, of, um, building those relationships, establishing trust, um, being faithful to the history, being faithful to, um, to the voices and, and understanding that, that every interaction you have, you know, maybe things will will be said that that shouldn't be included in the book. You know, I mean, may, you know, maybe there's there's histories that that are closely guarded. Their family histories, their mm-hmm. their stories that um that you know you that are told to you in confidence, and it's just sort of a, again a way to. I think, uh, facilitate a relationship. And so I, I kind of go back to that and, and, and you can't do that is, is a, no offense to like my journalist colleagues, but you can't do that in, on a, on a fly in, um, basis. You know, I mean, I think a lot of it is, is really being a member of the community and, mm-hmm. uh, and showing up and, and it's impossible to, I think, I, I think it's impossible to, uh, to just kind of, you know, email somebody cold and, uh, say, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I want to talk to you. I want to interview you for an hour and then, and, and somehow expect that you have the full story because I, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I think you have to spend time with people and you have to allow, um, relationships to evolve and trust to build. And, and that, uh, and that takes considerable amount of time. Yeah. To me, it again, gets back to your bottom up perspective of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and and it goes to show you again not to to kind of knock the the again the quote unquote great man theory of history, but like it it really does suggest to me the the failings of the the archival model, right? Hmm. In other words of like, you know, walking in with your with your PhD, waving it around into some, you know, exclusive archive in Washington, DC and saying, I am I am here, give me access to this person's records. And, you know, you spend a couple of days doing it or a couple of weeks or even a year or two going through records and archives and you produce this this big book and, you know, it's widely celebrated. And and that's certainly one way to do history, right? I mean, you know, kind of dwelling in the archives for a very long time, looking over, pouring over all of the all of the records and the letters and everything else. But to mm-hmm. me it it, it suggests limitations to that model. Um, there is so much that we will never have access to mm-hmm. and in history in general, right. Is always about, um, you know, working with the available evidence. And so I think there's, there's a real, um, skill and, and and I'll I'll be the first to to confess I have not perfected it by by any by any measure I mean it's 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 something I'm constantly working on but there's a real skill to um you know understanding the limitations of of document of documented evidence and nothing is better than nothing is more valuable let me put it that way nothing is more valuable than learning from elders to the yeah. extent that, that that you're able to do so um, and, and so that's, that to me is sort of a, I, I think what I have learned most in this process is kind of the, on the one hand, like the limitations of some forms of, of evidence, and then sort of the, the time 
human sensitivity it takes to really cultivate um, the relationships required to, to write what I would consider to be good history. Mm -hmm. Do we know if any previously enslaved African-Americans came to Alaska? That's a good question. And, and the, the, the answer is, is yes, we, we do. Uh, okay. and, and we know that through a close reading of, of documents on the whale ships. Uh, so whaling would have been, been the means by which um, formerly enslaved people would have arrived here or would have come through here. Okay. Uh, and, and so you, you have to be, you know, you have to infer a little bit. And, and one place you can look is in the, um, the records of the var various whaling ships where you get a sense of who is on them and, um, the race and their background. And so you, you do see by the 1840, 40s and 50s, certainly by the 1860s and 70s, um, a fair amount of uh, of people of African descent who would have come up on the whale ships, some of whom you can definitely uh, infer with a with a high level of certainty that they were that they had come through the American South, and you know their the the evidence is is kind of scant in terms of what you're able to learn about them, but. Uh, but you can get a sense of where they're coming from. Then, of course, you do have like the Buffalo Soldiers who came up in um, uh, the 1890s. Most of them were were uh, were born in uh, post civil in the post Civil War South. However, there were a few that were born enslaved. And did I hear correctly that these African Americans were coming to Alaska to work as whalers? Oh yeah. Yeah, um they so the whaling industry is 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 infinitely interesting to me for all kinds of reasons. Uh it, it like many industries it goes through uh, like a kind of a series of transformations and changes. And so when, you know, we think of, of whaling in the late 1700s, 1800s, it's, it's going to be principally out of the East coast in the North Atlantic. Um, those whale stocks are going to be, de are going to be depleted quite rapidly. And, um, and in the process, the, the center of whaling is going to ship to the, is going to shift, I should say, to the Pacific, um, and, and whaling for a very long time. I mean, you know, if you, if you read Moby Dick, for example, I mean, you know, one of the things that is that, that people readily note about Moby Dick and it's accurate is the, the diversity of the whaling crews. Okay. Um, and, and so really right through the, uh, the 19th century, these whaling crews would have been, um, highly diverse. They would have been multiracial. They would have been multi-ethnic, um, and and that would have again included um, free blacks from the north. It would have included some uh, some enslaved uh, some folks who escaped enslavement from the south uh, before the Civil War. Uh, it would have included you know an immigrant workforce. But interestingly enough, by the eighteen I'd say by the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, as whaling by this point in time, it really does shift to the Pacific. Um, the the crews become increasingly identified with um, black workers. I, I don't mm. know if, if you if you would have had a majority of um, of ships that were that were majority black, but you certainly would have had um, many ships that had a high percentage of um, of black whalers on them. Maybe you can. Tell me if this is accurate or not, but, and I think I, I, I must have heard this in college when we were reading Moby Dick and mm -hmm. the, the teacher, the professor 
was trying to help the class understand what type of job whaling was back then. <laughs> and he equated it to a garbage man. Um, well, I, I, I don't know if I, that's interesting. I, in, in the sense that it was an undesirable job. Yes, I, I okay. could see that. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a brutally dangerous job. It's, it's a job that I think is, um, is, is one that promises, um, <laughs> some returns for, for a few, uh, most people who go into whaling really only do it for, you know, maybe one, uh, one or two times before they're pretty much exhausted with it. You know, the people mm -hmm. who make money again are kind of few and far between. Um, but yet, but yet it, it's, it is one of the few jobs that's really open and available to, um, to black workers. It's also a job that, that does have, a a bit of a, a, of room for meritocratic advancement, which is something else that I think maybe people lose sight of. I mean, there's not a lot of jobs in 19th century America that would have permitted, um, an African-American to, to sort of move up. And, and I don't want to overstate that when it comes to whaling, but whaling does have a, um, I think a tendency among among professions at the time to uh, to promote people kind of based on ability, and you can understand why. I mean, if you're out there in these extraordinarily dangerous situations, and, and yeah. whaling is, is is it is a deadly profession, um, you want to elevate people who can do the job. I mean, you're you're dealing with like life and death situations, and and if you don't have people who can handle that, or you've promoted the wrong person, then um, then you're going to deal with a with an with a mass casualty event to to yeah. like, put it in our modern day terms. And so, um, you know, a lot of these black whalers who do kind of stick around, um, they do so because they're good at what they do, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's something that I, I I think we we should recognize both the sort of the the um, it is an undesirable job. Job, but yet it's also a job that provided um, a bit of a pathway for advancement to people who maybe wouldn't have had it otherwise. And what did, in general, the black life look like back then in Alaska? Uh, transient for sure. And so, you know, the, 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 these whaling ships, they would, they would typically come up, um, looking for, uh, for bowheads, bowhead whales, maybe sperm whales to some extent, but, but definitely bowhead by the time you get into the latter decades of the 19th century. Um, most of the time they would try to get out of here by, by the, by the winter and they would, they would head down to Hawaii or perhaps back to San Francisco or, um, various other ports of call along the West coast or the South Pacific. Uh, but there, there were certainly some, uh, some documented, uh, instances where they, they were unable to do that and they would actually have to winter in Western Alaska. Hmm. And so you get some really interesting, uh, uh, instances where, where it would seem as though, uh, black whalers have in fact, um, stayed in, uh, in some of these villages along the Western coast and, uh, the North slope going back to the early 20th century. Um, whether or not that was their intention to begin with is, is maybe another question, but, uh, but you know, I, yeah, again, I, I don't want to overstate it because the vast majority of these, uh, 
of, of these whalers did not view Alaska as a place to settle. They viewed it as a place to, um, to work their trade and then to, to move on. But uh, the weather being such as it was and the, the conditions being such as they were, uh, sometimes you would get stranded and sometimes you would have to make the most of, the, of, um, of a bad situation. Did you come across any specific stories or situations that are maybe representative of the black experience in Alaska back then? Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I can give you a couple, um, you know, with, with whalers again, it's, it's mostly, it's mostly passing through when it, when it comes to kind of the, the documented evidence of, um, of black, um, of black men and women who, who stayed in Alaska, they usually came in through the gold rush. And I mentioned the Buffalo soldiers, uh, and, and through the, uh, and also just as, as prospectors. And so I, I talk a little bit about a guy, St. John Atherton, who, who came through in the 1890s. And, uh, and he was one of the minority of people who was really spectacularly successful in the gold rush. Hmm. And, uh, and, and, and he, I believe he was born enslaved. Uh, he's kind of right in, right towards the towards the uh, Civil War era. So I, I can't recall his exact birthday. I'd have to go back and 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 certify that. But nonetheless, he he comes up. He was uh, from Alabama, and uh, and makes his way to Alaska, and does quite well in the gold rush, and is actually able to invest in some property in the Bay Area. Uh, and and does and has has a huge track of land in in the East Bay and then goes on to fund the Tuskegee Institute, which would of mm. course become this really notable institute of um, of black learning in uh, in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's one example. Um, there's oh my goodness uh, the the Buffalo Soldiers who come up in uh, in eight in the late 1890s. You know they're they're really here to stabilize Skagway. Skagway develops as a as a gold rush town, uh, one of the ports of entry for the Stampeders. There's also Dai, there's, uh, there's Wrangell, there's kind of the all Canada route. Mm -hmm. Um, there's the rich man's route that takes you across the Yukon river in the summer, but Skagway is where the, the bulk of the Stampeders come through. And, and it's a real mess of a town and it's really up to, um, the American military to stabilize the community. And so there's, um, there's a contingent of white troops that come in briefly, although their, um, their, their tour doesn't last all that long. And then the, uh, the company L famous company L, uh, the 24th infantry takes over for them, um, 1899, 1900, 01, 02. And it's the, um, it's these Buffalo soldiers that, that really lead the transition from uh from skagway being this rough and tumble gold rush frontier town to a uh to a more stable uh community and they're also there during a time of a border dispute it isn't really clear where alaska's southeast border is going to be mm. um with canada and canada of course is under the dominion of the british empire i i don't think that the united states was ever going to go to war with the british empire over the border of southeast canada but or southeast alaska i should say but um it's the 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 troop presence uh is is really seen as is particularly important just to to demonstrate that the united states does uh have this territorial claim 
claim. Um, of course, mm -hmm. left out of all of this is the indigenous Klingit and Haida and Simshimian peoples of, of the region. Yeah. Um, but from the sort of U.S. perspective, it's important to have this military presence um, in, in Southeast to, to show the colors and fly the flag. Before statehood, before Alaska statehood, who held the most wealth and the most power? Who held the most wealth and power in Alaska before statehood? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I I think I I would imagine, you know, that again, this being the, being so much kind of government land. One of the things that's that's interesting to me about Alaska is that you don't have. Uh, kind of the big, the big titans of industry in Alaska, in some ways because the public land is is um, is public. It's it's federally owned, mm -hmm. and so I guess who who holds the the wealth of Alaska before statehood would be the federal government, right? Um, and and of course today when we you know when we're talking about um, natural resource wealth and the Alaska Constitution, one of the things that's that's so interesting about Alaska is that our resource our resource wealth is still owned um, in public in common, right? You know, you you look at the the provisions of of uh, resource development. Uh, it really is supposed to be to the benefit of of the state of Alaska, which gets us into this interesting discussion about, of course, the permanent fund and mm -hmm. the and natural and um, natural resource extraction and everything else. Mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, now there are certainly people at the time who have who have made out quite well. Um, one of the people in Anchorage that I, I talk about is Zula Swanson. Zula Swanson was sometimes regarded as the is the richest African American in Alaska in the nineteen. 50s and 60s, just kind of, you know, straddling statehood, um, you know, and she had gained some wealth through uh, real estate investing in and around uh, Anchorage. Zula Swanson's a fascinating person. If uh, people aren't familiar with Zula Swanson, I encourage them to, to get familiar with her. She, uh, she came up uh, a couple decades into the into the 20th century, I believe in the 1930s, and um, quickly learned that at least in Anchorage, you know, the, the way to acquire a little bit of wealth and status was through property. You know, she had some, uh, some pursuits that were above, uh, above ground and below, uh, one of which was a brothel, but that also kind of doubled as a, um, as an inn and a restaurant. Uh, and so, you know, Zula Swanson, when it comes to Anchorage was a very prominent person who I, I always like to talk about, but if you're talking about kind of on that bigger level of like, you know, the equivalent of like a JP Morgan or, um, uh, a Guggenheim or uh, standard oil or whatever else. I mean, it's, it's kind of notable that Alaska doesn't have, a, you know, the real Titans of industry, um, to that extent, I, I guess, oh gosh. Okay. Is it, you're, you're, as you ask the question, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a couple, I, I guess maybe Cap, <laughs> Cap Lathrop. There you go. Maybe Cap okay. Lathrop. If, if anybody's familiar with Fairbanks, there's Lathrop high school Cap Lathrop was the you know started a series of newspapers, a famous opponent of Alaska statehood. I think he's regarded as Alaska's first millionaire. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but uh, but Cap Lathrop and and also Atwood, right? You know, yeah. you, you think about the the media moguls of the time, such as they were Alaska style. I mean, you know, these weren't people who were going to compete with um, with Hearst or anything, but nonetheless, yeah. I mean, they, they were certainly homegrown, um, Alaskan media, um, influencers, I guess, to use, use a, a more modern day term, but Lathrop and Atwood would be names that I would single out too. 
How do you think Alaska fits into the larger conversation involving the black experience in the United States? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, again, this is this is one of the, I think, the through lines that I tried to address in, in the book. And, and the, sh- the short answer is that um, it's the, the black experience in Alaska, sort of black history in Alaska runs very parallel to black history in the United States overall with some important caveats. And, and what I would mean by that is that Alaska is not exceptional in, in the sense that that you know we're free of of racism or uh, iterations of white supremacy or anything else. In fact, mm-hmm. you know Alaska has, like virtually all of the United States, um, some really shameful episodes in it, in its history. And so I think just being kind of upfront about that and mm-hmm. grappling with um, with you know histories of um, of racial oppression and native dispossession and all of that other um, you know those those thorny topics uh, we've got to do right. Any honest historian has. To think, think, recognize the role that um, that that racism, white supremacy, discrimination has played in its history. Um, mm-hmm. But but that's that's part of the story only. You know, um, the other part of the story is one of um, of of uh, black self activity of uh, of agency. Again, to go back to that that phrase, history from the bottom up. I mean, I think. Mm-hmm central to the idea of history from the bottom up is that people have their own agency. They're not simply acted upon by these, you know, really large impersonal forces. They're, they're agents in the making of their own history. And so when it comes to African-Americans in Alaska, you know, that history has been their involvement in business, their involvement in politics, um, culture, all of the above. And so on the one hand, we, uh, we recognize, you know, histories of racial discrimination. And on the, on the other hand, we also recognize that, that people are not just immobilized in the face of discrimination. They're in fact, agents who are very capable of, um, forging social movements, Mm -hmm. uh, solidarity. They're, uh, they're people who are going to, to rise up and involve themselves in, um, in, in the workings of the state. And so I think that that's, that's really important for people to, to recognize the ways in which history is complex. It isn't simply mm-hmm. sort of a, a narrative of victimhood. It's, it's a narrative of, um, of self-activity. And, mm. and to me, again, you know, that's, that's what history of, from the bottom up should really, uh, look at. It should, it should recognize those moments of agency. Mm-hmm. What I found interesting about your resume is that you were originally hired at, UAA to teach modern U.S. history, which includes the Civil War. Can you pinpoint when your research or your attention led you to researching race relations and power structures? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, so I was I was hired at, at UAA, as you pointed out, um, to teach modern U.S. history. My degree program, I finished up my my PhD at the University of Illinois, and my dissertation was actually on race, popular culture, and public policy um, in the American South. And so my okay. my areas of interest, I guess we, we could we could say that um, my areas of interest have, have long been um, you know, in the most broad, generic uh, way to describe it, American history, sure. But I mean, within that, it's been kind of, you know, um, histories of uh, racial identity, um, public policy, the ways in which the American state has um, kind of, you know, been involved in, in what I would consider to be kind of a um, a 
a racial project, right? You mm. know, and I, I think, you know, for most of American history, public policy, um, politics, um, social movements have been inflected with a very, um, with, with an understanding of race, mm -hmm. you know, American, you, you can't really understand American history without recognizing the, the foundational ways in which, um, racial and ethnic identity, uh, certainly gender identity has, um, expressed itself, right. Mm -hmm. Whether we're talking about, um, politics, culture, whatever the case would be. And so those have been, those have been areas that have long animated my interest in research going back to my, um, I guess, you know, earliest involvement in the profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're originally from a small town in Western Pennsylvania, and then you moved to Alaska and became an Alaska historian. Is that correct? Yeah, you're you're missing a couple steps in there. So okay, I, okay. I, <laughs> no, that's, that, I, I mean, it's all. I, I won't. You know, I, I won't presume that that your listeners are interested in in, in the minutia of my biography. But that's right. I, I don't know if I call it a small town so much as a suburb of Pittsburgh. So just okay. south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, went to graduate school in in Illinois. Um, did for a time. Did some research in Washington D.C., Austin, Texas. Um, but you know, when the, I hit the job market in 2010, 2011. And, and if, if, uh, folks remember, this was kind of the, uh, the depths of the, of the great recession. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you, you go on the job market and, and you don't really know what's going to happen. You know, the humanities, this is maybe a topic we could discuss another time, but the humanities have really been in crisis for a long time. And, um, in history, PhD programs at the time were really, um, struggling and, uh, and, and they, and they still are. I mean, you know, the, there's, there's long been this discussion of, you know, the, uh, the discipline of history, um, declining again with some few exceptions. And so, um, I completed my, my graduate program in 2011 and had the opportunity to come to Alaska, which I thought was awesome. I mean, I, I really did jump at it. I, didn't expect to be here that long. It was actually just a one-year position. Um, that one-year position turned into a two-year position, which then turned into a 10-year track position, which I'm eternally grateful for yeah. um, because that's the last 10-year track position we've had in history at the University of Alaska Anchorage. That was 2013. Um, you know, just to give uh, give everyone a sense of um, you know the, the kind of the state of humanities at UAA. Uh, you know, we've been kind of in crisis mode. I don't think that's news to anybody. I mean, you know, with budget cuts and the pandemic and everything else. And so I, I kind of slid under the door, <laughs> it, it, like this this last available moment. Um, and I I kind of joke that if it wasn't for the opportunities that I was able to uh, to have at UAA, I'd probably be you know living with my my father and you know he does the whole snowbird thing he's down in central florida part of the year and i'd probably you know be teaching teaching a class somewhere in in central florida for you know god knows what i mean it, it, it's so so i mean things worked out really well and i'm grateful yeah. for the opportunities that alaska has provided and yet you know i also sort of you know lament the um you know the the state of the humanities and and what's kind of happened to the field of history over the over the last you know 10, 15 years, but really even beyond that, it's, it's kind of this, this long, slow decline and we're doing what we can to, to strengthen history, but it's, it's, it's been tough. Mm -hmm. You know, my wife and I recently took a trip to Philadelphia and something that stood out to me is in certain parts of the city, 
you know, how entrenched in history it is. Oh, yeah. What do you think it means for a city or a state to be fully aware of its history, both the good parts and the bad parts? Yeah. So I think Philadelphia is a really great example of that because, you know, Philadelphia, it's, it's almost, it's so easy for Philadelphia because, you know, you've got, you've got the Liberty Bell and you've got Independence Hall and you've got the Constitution Center and, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's one of these East Coast cities that has, you know, I think has a legacy of um, philanthropy. And so, you know, there, there's these really wonderful cultural institutions. Um, but at the same time, I think just because Philadelphia has so much what we might consider to be like obvious history. And what I mean by obvious history, of course, is, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. Mm -hmm. when, when you think of American history, the first things that come to your mind are probably, you know, guys in powdered wigs writing the American Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. And and so, I, you know, not every place is going to have that, but every place does have their own history. Yeah. And, and so I, I think what what we need to do in Anchorage and in Alaska is, is recognize that, that we, we will never have um, you know, Constitution Hall or anything else. But, uh, but what we do have is this really, really rich um, Native history. We've got mm -hmm. this really mm -hmm. rich history of the railroad and of American industry. And so I, I think it's just, um, it's, it's just remarkable to me that the history that we do have, and I think we need to need to make sure that people recognize um, the the historical treasures that that exist. And, and of course, I mean, you know, um, culture bear, bearers know this already. Whether we're talking about you know indigenous history or whether you know just to talk about uh, Cal Williams again, I mean, mm -hmm. there are people in our community who who have such a deep understanding of our history. I think it's just making sure that um, that younger people are aware of it. Uh, that, that we're teaching it in our schools, that we're really leaning into the place-based nature of, of our history. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I, I teach courses at UAA where, of course, I'm going to teach the American Constitution, and of course, I'm going to teach the American Revolution, and, and those are all incredibly important. Um, but what I think really um, ignites uh, the, the, the students is to learn about the history of Alaska, to learn about the history of the place that they grew up in. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's that's really our our task is to is to highlight what makes South Central Alaska this this really wonderful place and in uh, a place that is complex, right? A place that does mm -hmm. have, uh, you know, a history that is that is challenging that we have to really grapple with. But I think, um, you know, we have to recognize what makes Alaska, um, Alaska's history unique and specific and then then mm -hmm. really highlight that and, and do so in a way that's deliberate and um, recognizes that we may not be Philadelphia, but in some ways our, our history is every bit as rich, if not richer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alaska was bought from Russia in 1867, but it wasn't given statehood until 1959. So Alaska, as a modern westernized state, is still very new. Mm -hmm. You know, its statehood is only 63 years old. I wonder if you think there's a difference in studying and documenting the history of Alaska versus a state that's 100 or 230 years into statehood. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I, I do. Okay. And well, I, I do. And, and I think the maybe the most obvious reason for this is uh, just to use the Constitution, for example, not the American Constitution, but the Alaska Constitution. We have people in our community who authored the Alaska Constitution. Vic Fisher comes to mind, right? You know, Vic Fisher mm -hmm. is this institution in, in, in and of its own um, right here in, uh, here in Anchorage. And, uh, and Vic was someone who was present 
at the at the time Alaska's founding statehood documents are drafted. Mm -hmm. I can promise you, you can't find anyone in Delaware, <laughs> the first state who, who was who was alive at that time. I mean, you know, yeah. Delaware enters enters the Union, you know, shortly after the the Constitution is drafted and uh, and, and ratified, and and you've got sort of the birth of the United States. And uh, Pennsylvania, my home state, obviously, you know, one of the one of the earliest states. Um, you you don't have access to to the I mean you mm -hmm. have access to their archives um, but as, yeah. as we've talked about you know archives can be can be incomplete and problematic and kind of you know you you need to be aware of the shortcomings of of, of any uh, archival collection and so I think one of the things that immediately separates Alaska from uh, from the the states that again we associate with like the early Republican period you know the years of 17, 1789, 1790 through the first decades of the 18th century, um, is that, that, you know, we actually have people here who can, who can tell us what was going on, uh, in constitution hall and Fairbanks and that those really critical years from 1955 to 1959, mm -hmm. um, really when the statehood movement is, is, it, you know, in its full force. Uh, and, and so that to me is, is really, um, it's cool. I mean, just yeah. to be honest with you, I, I can't think of a better word to describe it. Um, Alaska's constitution, I think, is really fascinating because it, you know, in theory, and, you know, this could be a point of debate, but in theory, I think, you know, it's it's benefited from seeing maybe some of the shortcomings of, of, of other state constitutions. Hmm. And and so, you know, there's there, the Alaska state constitution is is widely considered to be one of the um, one of the strongest among state constitutions. I, I would argue precisely because it had the benefit of looking at other state constitutions and understanding, you know, maybe an independent judiciary is a good thing. And, um, uh, you know, the, the way that we, uh, the way that we've got like privacy protections, I think kind of exceed what you would find in a lot of other states. Um, the, the ballot initiative process, um, our natural resources, the way that we, you know, again, kind of by, uh, by constitutional language, um, the way that we manage our, our natural resources is fundamentally different than, um, than other states. And again, I mean, you know, we can have a debate about whether those things are, are good, bad, or indifferent, but um, but certainly the the people who drafted Alaska state documents did in fact believe that they were writing at the time uh, what was a, a progressive document and one that that was uniquely suited to meet the challenges of of its time, which would have been the mid twentieth century as opposed to the late seventeenth century, early uh, I'm, I'm sorry, late eighteenth uh, century, early nineteenth century. Mm -hmm. You know, I I know that your book black lives in alaska just came out but are there any future projects any any current projects that you're working on right now oh yeah yeah um i would i would love to so well what, what yeah so one project that we are working on right now um, is the the um, the Alaska Studies uh, textbook that we're hoping to 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 do something with the um, with the Anchorage School District? That's okay. that's been kind of a, a longer running project where we're working with um, the Anchorage School District to to try to provide a textbook that is um, you know inclusive and uh, in telling Alaska's history. I think from a diversity of perspectives, that's certainly something that. Uh, I'm invested in, you know, again, this is the public historian in me is, you know, really trying to expand the reach of history into the classroom and to mm -hmm. ensure that 
that um, that this generation of students really do um, understand um, the history of, of their of their home. I think that's that's incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that I, the bigger project for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of nerding out just that you asked this question because I've got a few ideas in mind, <laughs> all very, very formative. And, you know, you'll have to invite me back in 10 or 15 or 20 years when I actually get these all into publication. <laughs> but I would I would love to write a, just a, a, a like a general history of Alaska that, that is, again, sort of inclusive of the um, the various people who have come here for one reason or another, the people who, of course, uh, have inhabited Alaska for thousands of years, yeah. um, right through our present day. And, and so, I mean, thinking about Alaska as a space of kind of continuous change of, um, of migration, of labor, uh, I, I don't believe that that history has ever been written. Um, I don't presume to be the one, the only person who can write it, but I would like to try. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would really like to try to envision like a state history that, that presents kind of the, the sweep of its peoples in, in a way that isn't just kind of cursory, but but is is kind of detailed and nuanced that that takes seriously the contributions of um, of, of Alaska natives, but Filipinos, um, mm -hmm. African Americans, of immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, looking at Alaska as kind of a a, a place of um, of migration generally, and a destination for people to come for all kinds of different reasons. You know, some of which um, work out, many of which don't. Right, and mm -hmm. and so I, I think that would be a, a really wonderful book. I, I, I also have this long history. Um, you probably were able to infer this just from, you know, our, our interview. I mean, the, the history of, of the Alaska Railroad is, is, is deeply fascinating to me. So I'm working with Jim Blassengame to document that history. Of course, the Anchorage Museum will be opening the exhibit on May 5th, which we're really looking forward to. You guys always do such an amazing job with these exhibits. Um, I would love to use that as kind of the, the launch point for like a longer manuscript on the history of the railroad. I think that um, that would be really useful. I I would I kind of wish that that we would have done that a little bit earlier so we could have we could have had a book to kind of be timed with the exhibit. But unfortunately, that won't happen. Um, and then I, I think kind of beyond that, I've, I've had this long interest in the Alaska gold rush and just the gold rush era. So really looking at like the West coast from like the California gold rush in the 18, late 1840s and fifties, right through the, um, the last rushes in Alaska, which would have taken us to about 1910, 1912 and trying to figure out the way in which kind of, um, West coast, natural resource rushes have this um, really foundational impact on the industrialization of the, of the United States in the latter half of the 19th century, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. So those are like three really big projects. And like I said, I, I don't, I, I, if I'm to be honest, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I would be lucky if I, if I ever get one of these into publication, let alone all three, but you know, I can, I can dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have faith that you can do it. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll need all the help I can get. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ian, that's, that's all the questions I have for you. Well, this has been really, really fun, Cody. I thank you so much for having me on. And again, I just want to recognize the Anchorage Museum and all of the amazing work that, that 
that you all do to to bring this history to the public and just to I mean I've I've just been continually impressed with the with the quality of the people over at the museum obviously you among them and everyone I've worked with there has just been such professionals and and have this, I think really operated with the assumption that 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 this is valuable and that we're all kind of in this together and that the humanities are important that bringing art and and history and culture um, making it accessible is really what I think we're all invested in so. I just want to, you know, thank you again for the opportunity. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. Mm-hmm.